Hey, good morning. How are you doing? Uh, this is your first time with our church. My name's Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. Uh, we will be using it extensively, uh, so feel free to get up and grab one of those. Uh, we are about to embark on a sermon series in John's Gospel in 14 through 17 uh, called Believe Jesus. And, and the reason we're going to do this is we are a church, we are what are called elder-led congregationalists. So we believe that there are guys who are to lead the church, but we together, as the people of God, together are the church, and to be a member of this church is take, to take responsibility for the people that are the church, and for the church to take responsibility for you. And something that is extremely and exceedingly important is that we are on the same page about what Jesus teaches, about what the Bible teaches, and what we believe as a people. And so we're going to dig in and look from Jesus himself in what's called the farewell discourse, and Jesus is going to tell us what to believe and what is true, and, and we want to take that to heart. Uh, also, just quickly before I pray for us, uh, if you didn't hear Pastor Joe mention, we have a members meeting this afternoon, uh, 15 minutes after we're done. There'll be refreshments and such. You can grab said refreshments uh, and hang out for a minute, and then we'll come together and have a members meeting. Uh, these are super important for us as a church. If we're actually going to be a church that you're you're part of what's going on, right? That it's not just some guys who are doing some professional church ministry, but if we're the church together, it's really important to have these times. And anybody's welcome there. Um, if you're a member, we'd ask that you be there. If you're not a member, please feel free to come and see what a members meeting is and why we do what we do and, and how that actually looks and how that actually uh, facilitates us being the people of God together. So you're more than welcome to come to that, uh, even if this is your first time here ever. So I'll pray for us. And we'll go ahead and dig in. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day. <coughs> Excuse me. This is your day. And, and I pray, Lord, that you would help me to stay so close to the text. I pray you'd help me to stay so close to your word. Uh, I pray that this wouldn't about me being inventive or creative, but about us listening and hearing you when you tell us to believe in God and believe in me also. That you tell us the truth about what you're doing in the room you're making for us. We would believe you when you say that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and not just something that we sign off on as Christian doctrine, but something that would be infused in our very being, and that would drive our hearts and our minds with our families and with our friends and at work, that, that our whole mind would be shaped by the reality that we get God because of you, Jesus, and that you yourself are God who have saved us from ourselves to life, from sin. We need you, Jesus, for this. Please move today. Please guide us today. Please lead us today. For all these things for your glorious and holy name, Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so we're in John chapter 14, starting in verse 1. I'll read the text and then we'll dig in. Let not your hearts be troubled. Uh, if you have a red letter Bible, this is mostly red letters, by the way. These are Jesus' words here. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told, uh, I would have told you that I... Uh, pardon me. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
If you have known me, you would have known my father also, for now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in, believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Okay. So, what are we looking at today? Believe Jesus about God. Jesus is the one who can actually teach us about God, he himself being God, and he himself knowing God the Father, and knowing the Spirit, and being one and unified with them. Believe Jesus about God. Now, this is so important for us because it is quick. we are quick as people to live in a reality that is different than the reality of who God is and what he has done in the person of Jesus. We are quick to live in a different narrative identity, to believe a different story about the way the world is, what's happening in the world, who we are. We're, we're quick to believe other things. We're quick to have other priorities when we don't see who God is. And in fact, when we hear Jesus' words, it is so important for us to have formed in the reality of who Jesus is and what he's telling us to do, to, to grow in a passion for who he is, to live our lives for his glory. But not just that, to grow in our conviction about who Jesus is, what he has done, and what his word says. And not only that, but to grow in that reality, to not allow how we understand the universe to operate and work to be formed by culture or to be formed by that book you got on Amazon last week, but for it to be first and foremost informed by God's word and that God's word is the lens that we interpret all other things. God's word is the lens that we look and, and interpret and think through and, and make decisions about how the world works. And in fact, and when we do those things, we're living in response to who God is and what he's done. So here we go, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Well, why is he going to say that? Uh, chapter 13, Jesus just delivered some very bad news. Um, you can go home and read it this afternoon. In chapter 13, uh, Jesus said that one of the 12, his disciples, is going to betray him. That's Judas. Uh, he told Peter, who's like, no, we're, I'll take care of it. I won't betray you. I, I got it, Jesus. And Jesus lets him know, sorry, dude, you're not going to make it. Uh, and in fact, they're troubled because as far as they can tell, and I mean this from the most worldly sense, Jesus, and in the most worldly sense, Jesus is on the top of his game, right? He just came in, it's Passover, everyone got out the palm leaves, like maybe you did in Sunday school when you were a kid, and everyone gets out the palm leaves, Hosanna to our king, and everyone thinks Jesus is the one who God promised from day one who's going to come and put everything back the way it's supposed to be. They think Jesus has come, and he's going to kick these Romans out. There's Romans who have taken over uh, Israel, they're in charge in Judah, and things are not going well, and Jesus is here, and he's going to fight those guys, and they're going to get out of there, and we're going to have prosperity and everything's going to be awesome. And Jesus said, I'm going to go to a cross and die. And everyone's like, whoa, you got the program wrong. You missed it. And of course, he knows that they're the ones missing it. 
uh, as we'll see. But he says this, let not your hearts be troubled. Man, how often are our hearts troubled? You got enough money in the bank. You got a job? You going to keep your job? You going to keep your job very long? You got friends? How many people are, you know, liking your Twitter thingy majigger thing that people do, right? Whatever that thing is, are you popular? Are you liked? Are you accepted? You worry, you stay up and you're concerned, and Jesus is saying, "Let not your hearts be troubled. Their minds, though they're probably more set on Romans than Twitter, are set on worldly things." And he's cueing them back into reality. He's cueing them back into the way the world is and what they know because they know him. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now to us, particularly if you're a Christian, we can kind of read over these things. Oh, cool, yeah, Jesus, Trinity, yeah, I got it. This is the kind of stuff that would really, really freak them out. Really freak them out. Right? Sometimes we, we, don't, we don't hear it. So believe in Jesus. You know, we believe in uh, politicians and we believe in systems and we believe in programs. For Jesus to say, believe in God and believe in me is to make clear, Jesus is being exceedingly clear here, that he believes himself one worthy to be believed right along with God in the same way we'd believe God, meaning he is God. Believe Jesus about God. Believe Jesus about God. Jesus is God. Now, John, this is not new in John's gospel. If you go with me to John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, he says this. In the beginning was the word. Same exact Greek words used in the Greek version of Genesis in chapter 1, verse 1, about God. In the beginning was the word, meaning Jesus, so it's stated as God was with God and was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. Now this, this little thing here, this is where I, where I like, have to like hold everything in to avoid nerding out about syntax, because half of you are like, what the heck is syntax? And before I had to take a class on syntax, I didn't know what syntax was either, but there's a nerdy, nerdy, and arthritis theos in here, and you're saying, what does any of that matter, and why do I care? You don't need to worry about that, but what you need to know is that in the way that John has said this, he couldn't be clearer about what he is saying. There's an old-timey heresy called Arianism, and Arianism is the idea, well, Jesus is kind of God-ish. He's kind of like God, maybe he's a big angel. He's not God, he's kind of right under God. Now, now, the problem with that is the way John wrote this sentence does not possibly allow for that conclusion. Even the guys who don't love Jesus, who are nerdy Greek scholars, will agree what John is saying here couldn't be clear. What he's also saying here, and what it can't be, is uh, a kind of polytheism, uh, a kind of tritheism, where God's a God, God the Father's a God, Jesus is a God, and the Holy Spirit's a God, which, by the way, no one, no one, no one in the early church thought. No one threw that one on. The worst heretics didn't even throw that one on the table in the first, like, five, six, seven hundred years of the church. No one thought that was an option. But what this does is this deals with another thing, that's a heresy called modalism. Modalism is the idea that, well, God the Father in the Old Testament, God was God the Father in the Old Testament, and then 
uh, when Jesus is around, uh, he's Jesus, and then uh, later, uh, he's the Holy Spirit. Now, why do you care about modalism, or why do you care about uh, uh, Arianism? Well, because Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness are Arian in their theology, and they care about that anarthrist theos that you're like, what are you talking about? And the guy comes to your door, and he's like, well, you know there's an anarthrist theos here, and you're like, can you say that three more times fast? I don't know what you're talking about, but it sounds good when he's saying it. So even from day one, that particular deal does not fly. Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, uh, and many of the Seventh-day Adventists are Arian, and that's why it matters. Modalism, uh, oneness, theology, Pentecostalism is modalism, which is an old, old heresy with the church dealt with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Why do I say any of these things? Well, one, they're alive and well, and you need to know about them. And two, the church dealt with all this stuff. There are not new heresies. There are not new doctrinal problems. They're just old doctrinal problems that pop up in a new way. So here we are dealing with them in John's gospel again. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is God, and God is God. Believe Jesus about God. Now this one who is God, Jesus... The one God of the whole universe, we're going to see, we're going to kind of, in, these, these, in, this, in this paragraph, we're going to kind of cycle around. Uh, it's a kind of rhetoric that John uses where you come back around and look at the idea again. So we'll pick this idea back up in a couple of verses. Okay, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? This is important. This is really, really important, because if you're reading a King James right now, that word says mansions. And there are people who have used the King James Bible for a really long time. And the problem is that Bible exists now, and it says mansions. So when you hear, I go and prepare mansions for you, the first thing we think about is, I'm going to have a big mansion, and in so doing, we miss the point of the verse. We miss the point of the verse. Uh, I'll tell you what, heaven's off the hook. Uh, go with me quickly to... So I'm not, I'm not trying to say it's not awesome, by the way, because that would be wrong. And I'm not even going to say it's not splendid. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it's up on the screen. You can go there with me if you'd like, but leave your finger back in 14. So do we not, this is Paul, so we do not lose heart. That's interesting that he says the same exact thing that, that Jesus said to John and that other thing. Amazing, huh? So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Praise the Lord Jesus at work at you if you're a Christian. I don't care if it doesn't feel like he's not at work with you. We're not a God. We don't worship a God of feelings. We worship a God of truth. The truth is if you love Jesus, he is in the process of sanctifying you, moving in your life, and changing you. And yes, sometimes it's painful. And yes, sometimes it feels slow. And yes, it feels like, uh, you know, like ice melting. It doesn't feel like you're changing, but God is at work at you by, in you, by the way. But that's a different sermon. For this light momentary affliction is being prepared for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent, so the tent, right now the experience, the metaphor, tent. You ever go camping? Tent. What happens when you get home after like three days on Ross Lake? and you sleep in a bed that's not rock, and you're not awake when the sun goes up and exhausted when the sun goes up, hopefully what you do is you say, thank you, Jesus, I get to sleep in a bed most of the time. Thank you, Lord, you are gracious to me. 
and also should spur us, by the way, to pray for the brothers and sisters around the world who don't have comfy, cushy beds or heating or robes or all those things, and to not forget our brothers and sisters around the world who love Jesus. But again, that's kind of another sermon. Here we go. Um, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Okay, back to John. Now, so why do I say the mansions thing? Because we don't want to have a wrong theology. We don't want to miss what he's saying here. So Tyndale, who's an awesome old British guy, English guy, translated one of the first English Bibles, and he used the word mansion. And so the King James guys are instructed not to change or deviate from his translation wherever they can. So they translate word, the word mansion. The problem is this. When we think of mansions, we think of uh, Ed McMahon or Jay-Z or Jed Clampett, and we think mansions. When Tyndale wrote what he wrote, which he ultimately gets from the Latin in the Vulgate, and when Jerome wrote what he wrote in the Vulgate, an old Latin translation of the Bible, the word mansions didn't mean Ed McMahon. Mansions meant a place to live. Okay, so, so look at how, if we're not careful at how we read this, and this is pervasive, this is a pervasive understanding of the text, even though if you're in an ESV, an NASB, or any other Bible translation, it probably says rooms. But the, the idea of mansions is so prevalent uh, in uh, our, our theology that it needs to be addressed. Because the other thing about mansions is it misses another huge point. It's all about you. It's all about you getting a mansion forever. Which, by the way, isn't what heaven is about. Okay? What do I mean? In my Father's house, there are many rooms. It's not about you getting a mansion. It's you living with God forever. Way better than a mansion, by the way. It's not about you having whatever you think is worldly and awesome on steroids. It's you face-to-face -face with Jesus forever. And that's joy. It's for His glory and our joy forever that as saved people, we'd be saved from ourselves to God by Jesus to be with Him forever. And when we can keep that in view, that changes Wednesday morning when your boss is yelling at you for something you didn't even do. When we have that deep abiding, abiding conviction that God has saved me, will save me, is saving me, and I'm saved to Him forever, it changes when you just feel like the house is chaos. When the world is chaos. I'm not saying that we forget about it. It just sets it in context. In my Father's house are many rooms. In a first century context, this is actually really beautiful, I think. When your kids would get married, the, the, what would likely happen if your son got married to a gal, he'd start adding on to your house. He'd build a room on your house, and it would be set up around this courtyard so the whole family gets to live together, eat together, party together, do life together with their own kind of place for their own family, but built up together in this awesome way. So God's not inviting us to have a big mansion in heaven forever. God's inviting us to live with Him forever, to be with Him forever, and to know Him forever. That is what Jesus is saying. Believe God, believe in me also. Oh, man. Ooh, here we go. Uh, verse 3. Uh, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Important, verse 3. Jesus hasn't left us. Whatever situation you come in from this week, you are not forgotten by the God of the universe. 
He works this out for his glory and for our joy. And things will not always be this way forever. He will wipe every tear from every eye. He will put the world the way it's supposed to be. He will, as it said, I think we looked at it last week, First, or First Thessalonians 4, he will return with a cry of command. He will settle the score. Uh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And he will clear his name for being the only innocent man who ever lived executed as a criminal. And it will be glorious and it will be wonderful. Now he says this thing in verse 4 though. Now imagine you're one of the disciples hearing this. I think the text begs us to do that. You're, you're Thomas now. You're hearing him say these things. And you know the way to where I am going. Oh yeah? Where the heck are you talking about, Jesus? Uh, it's interesting when you look in the text, in the Old Testament, again and again and again, God's going to use this language. I go and prepare a place for you. The promised land. I go and prepare a place for you. I, he always says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Well, they're in... They're in the place that they think they're supposed to be. They're in Jerusalem when he's saying it. What do you mean you're going to leave here and go prepare a place for me? And do you know the way to where I am going? Um, this is what has been called, and I think rightly, what Thomas is about to say is Johannine, which is a really fancy way to say stuff that John wrote. John's Gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Book of Revelation. Johannine misunderstanding. It's applied to the disciples when Jesus says something clear like, you know the way to where I go. And they say, Jesus, we have no idea what you're talking about. Can you tell us what you mean? Because we don't know. Now, what's great is that Jesus actually always unpacks it for them. Sometimes he gets a little, he, he, he corrects them a little bit. But, but here he just tells them. Yeah, he corrects them. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, this is one of, like, don't read this too fast. This is something we say a lot. We put on t-shirts. We put on bumper stickers. This is one of the most important verses in the whole New Testament. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he says these three things. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Okay. He is the way. Jesus is the one and only way to God, period. Period. God has revealed himself exclusively in his Son, period. He is the way to God. We live in Seattle we love the phrase, uh, many passed up one mountain. They're all the same, which is really unfortunately very colonial because then you're telling everybody they're worshiping the same God. That's, that's actually rude to other people. Uh, only Westerners think that that's an okay thing to say. Uh, it's colonial. You're going in and saying, well, I know you think you believe this, but you really believe this other thing over here. It's very pejorative. It sounds humble. It's not humble. It's pejorative. One great preacher uh, Mark Dever once pointed out that yes, there's one mountain with many paths up the mountain that all lead to the throne of God. And either Jesus has paid the price for your sins or you will have to. That is the truth. But he's the way to God. But hear it, right? No one gets to the Father except through the Son, period. One way to God, his name is Jesus. But we have to hear this whole thing in concert. So Jesus has just said, I'm going to make room Lots of room for anybody. The room is there. I'm going to make the room. 
Jesus is inclusive in the sense that he is making the room for all to come in. There is room under the cross for everyone who would turn from their sins and turn to Jesus and live. Jesus is a mighty Savior. I can't get to him, so he came down to get to me. In myself, in my own delusion, in my own bondage, in my own sin, I could not save myself from myself, and God had to come down and get to me, and there's nothing I can do to earn his love but turn from my sin and turn to him. Praise the Lord. This is the gospel. You cannot earn his love. He saves you from yourself. Right? In his sovereign grace. But hear it. There's room under the cross. If you're not a Christian today, there is room under the cross for you to be washed by the blood of Jesus and to live. There is room. Not only that, I'm the way. God's not kept it hidden. This is not Gnostic mystery cult stuff. This is not, oh, only those guys at that one meditation center really know the way to get to God. God has made it plain and clear by sending his son and made it clear. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Period. He's not even hiding it. It's not a mystery. You only get to God through me. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. Mercy and grace that he has extended this truth and this invitation to us to all call on his name. To all who repent and believe. All who believe in their heart and confess their lips will be saved. Okay? That's amazing. He's not hiding it. It's not a mystery. But here, he's the way. And what makes him the way? He's the truth. So these other two statements are just as true and important, but they're subordinate to this first idea that he is the way. This idea of the way is so important that the church isn't called Christians until Antioch. Up to that time, what is the church called? What are Christians called? Followers of the way. Believers of the way. The way? This way. Jesus is the way to God. Period. So the way. And how is he the way? Because he is the truth. Because he is the truth, he is the way to God. Not only that, he is the life. He's the life. John uses this phrase over and over again, eternal life. I think you're going to see it even in this text, if I'm not mistaken. It's all over 1 John. It's all over the Gospels. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, we, we only see part of it, and we see the, uh, the duration part of eternal. We say, oh, so you live forever. And maybe that's because we watched Highlander too much that that's the only thing we think of or, or Fountain of Youth or whatever other thing that shows that I only watch TV from the, about the 80s back. Highlander. Swords, crazy guys. Live forever. Queen song. But it's not just, it's not just, don't hear me there. It's not just, uh, you're going to live forever with God or without God, it's, it's forever, forever. It's forever, ever. But it's not really life without Jesus, and it's not really life without God. And eternal life has a quality that breaks into the now. Because eternal is always associated with God and what he's doing. And if you're a Christian, that doesn't mean you're on hold and waiting for a life glorifying God. It doesn't mean you're on hold waiting to start living when you die. It's that as soon as you meet Jesus, you get to live. You were dead, and now you're alive. Praise the Lord. That's how much the gospel, that is the power of the gospel right there. Dead men don't make moves. You were dead if you're a Christian. He made you alive together with God. He paid the price for your sin and made you alive, and now you're alive. All of your sin paid for. 
all of it dealt with, being sanctified, being changed, having it being pointed out, being refined, all these wonderful truths about what God is doing in your life, and he's done it so you start living now. Live. You were saved to live. How do we live? Glorifying God by enjoying him forever, starting right now. Living our life in deep abiding conviction and passion around God and Jesus. Keep going. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. For now, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is crazy stuff. We just heard Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is the end of the sentence, okay? So what is, I mean, there's, there's some profound things going on here. Uh, if you go with me to Exodus chapter 3, way in the front. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come, so Moses, God has heard the cries of his people, Moses has fled, God's met him in the uh, wilderness, so to speak, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to, the Mo to Moses, and this is probably in your Bible in all cap locks, I am who I am. I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered through all generations. Well, how do they remember him? So hold on to that idea. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, and the life. John. John has these little I am statements. There's seven of them. Seven of them? Seven of them in John's gospel. One of the best ones is in uh, John uh, chapter 8. We'll start in... Verse 51, and it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, this is Jesus, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Bad day when we call Jesus, or Jesus has a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself to be? Let's be really clear. Some folks want to say Jesus never said he was God. They are absolutely and completely wrong. Not only there are there are clear instances of that in the New Testament, He's saying things here that makes people go nuts because he's saying things they regarded as blasphemous. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know the father. If I were to say to you that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. 
but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. You can read about that in Galatians. It's awesome. Uh, and I don't have time to go there. He said he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Past tense, before Abraham was, I am. Present tense, always was, always will be. Same yesterday, today, and forever. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. Jesus Christ. Now why is all that important? Why do we go to all that stuff? Because, again, in the Greek Bible, it would have been the Bible they had and read. That little phrase in Exodus we just looked at a minute ago. There's this little phrase, and I always point it out when we get there because it's really important. It says, ego emi. means, really technically, if you were translating it really literally, I, I am, which is not how anyone talks, nor how you would actually say it and render it in Greek. But what it is, it's, it's an emphasis because the word emi always has I am. You just translate that I am. I am going to the store, blah, 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 blah. You just put emi, no problem. That's how you write it. If you put the ego there, I, it's putting an emphasis there. And so the way they rendered the word from the Hebrew was ego and me in chapter 3, verse 14. Why is that important? Because Jesus is walking around saying ego and me, and everyone says, did he just say what I think he said? And as postmoderns, as people who are not necessarily soaked in the Bible, we don't necessarily freak out about that. But when they would hear that, the alarm bells would be going off, and they're like, did he just say what I think he said? He's blaspheming. That would be their inclination. In fact, Jews would have been very careful, especially in this context, not to say that if that's not what they meant. So Jesus believes himself to be God. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this very helpful little thing. Uh, and I think it is helpful. That Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. Perhaps you're familiar with that one. It's not, you just can't have, well, you know, he wore Birkenstocks and a tunic. And he said some cool stuff. And he turned water into wine. And he sounds like a guy I could hang out with. Wrong. Because if Jesus... We take anything he says. Jesus is claiming to be God, which means he's crazy. Could be. Right? I don't think so. I'm, I'm Christian pastor. No, he's not crazy. He's God. He's a liar. Um, it's a shell game. He's working the people. He's getting a job out of the deal. Uh, this one's really important, I think, in our context to observe. Uh, we've grown very cynical in America uh, you've got TV channels with people with gold thrones, and if you send me some money, I'll send you some snake oil, and you'll get healed, and big jets, and all this stuff, right? We've got a whole industry, a religion industry out there. And so it's easy for us to be cynical and say, well, yeah, all these early church guys, this is probably the deal. Here's the deal about the early church. Before Constantine legalizes Christianity, do you know what you get for being a pastor? You get to die. In the last two mighty persecutions, the worst being the Diocletian persecution, you know what you get when they catch you? They burn your Bible and they kill you. That's what they do to you. That's what you get out of the deal. That's what you get out of the shell game. You know what Jesus gets? Crucified. You know what Peter gets? You know what Paul gets? Died. Same day, one gets his head off, one is crucified upside down according to church history. They both die on the same day. That's what you get out of the shell game. That's what you get out of the deal. I don't think he's a liar because if he did, he was a really bad liar and he had a really bad plan to make some money out of the deal, right? Bad plan ends you at the cross. Wrong, right? 
He's Lord. He's God. There's no middle ground with Jesus. And by the way, I also find when I, and this is a good one. If you have this one, if, you, if you're at school or at work, and somebody says, well, you know, you know, Paul, he's weird. I just like the Gospels, and I, I think Jesus is a good teacher. Ask them one question. Have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever read the Gospels? Because Jesus says crazy stuff if he's not God. He is not a nice man and is not, like, very politically correct in any way, shape, or form. Loving, kind, gracious, wonderful, Savior. But it's also a great time to say, never read the Bible, would you like to get together with me at lunch? We can read the Bible together. I won't even be offended if you put yours in a brown paper bag and you don't want the other co-workers to know I'm going to read the Bible together. I won't even tell anybody. You want to come talk about Jesus? Let's talk about Mark's gospel. Just a thought. Don't waste the opportunity. Okay. Back in here. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Oh, pardon me. Verse 8. So again, another one of these Johannine misunderstandings. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? We want to see God. Have I been with you so long, Philip, that you don't see what you have? You don't see what's happening here? We've been around three years together, Phil. Phil? Philip? Not like a Tommy shorting, shortening of Philip. Phil. Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. God has revealed himself in an extremely clear way in his son Jesus Christ. If you want to know who God is, you get to know his son. Number one way to get to know his son is to get to know his word. Read your Bible. You want to know God more? Read your Bible. He will meet with you again and again and again. And the thing is, like, you can get tired of reading, you can get tired of meeting. God doesn't get tired. He'll just keep meeting with you. Keeps bestowing the truth on you. Read your Bible, please. Not because I said read your Bible in the imperative, but because you get to meet with God. And I know you got your, your news app or, you know, a TV show that everybody likes. And I'm not saying don't live. I'm saying just don't forget. Want God to talk to you? Open his word and listen. Please. Do you not believe, this is 10, do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? Now, here's something clear too with that whole um, modalism, Arianism stuff we were talking about. Jesus is distinctly unique and distinctly one with the Father. That's the thing throughout here. I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Well, there's a unity there. There's a Trinitarian unity there. They're one God. We believe in one God and three persons. And yet they're distinct enough. And you see it all over. It's, John's gospel is just crawling with these Trinitarian uh, pictures. Do you not believe that I am, in, uh, I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Here's another one of those imperatives. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, why in the world would he say that? We need to be clear why he's doing these miracles. Because, whoa, everyone's waiting for the day that I go just one step too far and I fall on my face and somebody wins a bet. <laughs> September 
That was almost it. Whoever's got September 12th, <laughs> try again. Try again. Um, I've lost my place. Um, the works themselves. Okay. So the works that Jesus does have a purpose and a point, which we'll talk about a little further. But you need to see, whenever you see Jesus doing a work, ask yourself the question, when you're reading your own Bible, how does this demonstrate Jesus, God's Messiah, putting the world back the way it's supposed to be? So when he feeds people, it's because people aren't supposed to be hungry. That's a result of the fall. When people are sick or dying, he heals them. Why? Illness, death, result of the fall. All these things will be put together, back together when Jesus wipes every tear from every eye. When he puts the world back the way it's supposed to be, it will be restored. But he could have, right? Fireworks out of his fingertips and magic tricks and stuff. They're not magic tricks. They have a purpose and a point. And they're to point to the coming, restored kingdom of God. So the works themselves demonstrate that. That's what I'm saying. The works themselves do this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Okay. Of course, it's when I'm run. Thank you. Have a good night. No, just kidding. Uh, we're running. The, the clock runs low, and we get to these very controversial, horribly mistranslated, misapplied verses, so we'll make sure we get to the bottom of them before we call it a day. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. So some people have said this. You don't have enough faith. If you had more faith, you could turn water into wine. If you had more faith, you'd see people raised from the dead. If you had more faith, people would be healed. I am a firm believer. If someone is sick, you pray your guts out, and you ask the sovereign God of the universe to heal them. Not saying, don't do that. God is sovereign king and can do whatever he wants to do. So when you are in strife and you are in trouble or someone is sick, we get on our face and we acknowledge that he's the king of everything and ask him to move. And when he does move, we give him the glory. We don't take credit for ourselves. Look how good I prayed. No. God flexes and we say, did you see what Jesus did? I told you he's God. And also when... We'll look at this in a second, but when you're praying your guts out and you're praying your guts out and you're praying your guts out and you get that call from the hospital or whatever it might be, we understand that he's working out all things for good and that he's working this thing out the way that he will. And we trust him. We trust him and we rest upon that. We'll keep going here. Greater works than these. So what does that mean? I'm going to read the whole thing and we'll get there. Greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. See where the power comes from? It's not from you. It's from him. We're going to hear in a week or two. He's going to send us the Holy Spirit. Why can you understand the Bible? Why did you come to believe in Jesus? Why can I say to my kids when I tuck them into bed, Jesus is with you? Because Jesus has sent his spirit to manifest his presence in the world. So I can with confidence, because your kids will hear it, and we say, good night, I love you, Jesus is with you, good night, you turn out the lights. And at some point in time, they ask the question when they're like four, five, or six, depending on your child, Jesus... How is Jesus here? I didn't see him. Great question, son. Great question, daughter. 
uh, I would also encourage you as parents, that's not the time, like, good night, hit the light and run. If you don't have the answer, say, I'm going to go and I'm going to call somebody or I'm going to look on the computer or read the Bible or pull out my study Bible. I'll be back in a minute, right? Right? Don't just make something up either. Oh, I have a good idea. Don't do that. <laughs> See, the Trinity is like a rain cloud, uh, you know, because it, it can be rain. It's like water because it can be vapor or it can be ice or it can be water. It's like the Trinity. That's modalism. That's not the Trinity. That's modalism. That's what I was talking about earlier. Don't make stuff up just because it even sounds good with your kids. Modalism. And some of you are like, oh, I've got to send a text to somebody. Sorry. It's okay. You just say I was wrong. I've been wrong. I'm wrong all the time. Um, okay, anyways, back to here. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So what's the point? Let's bang that drum. When you're on your face, praying your guts out for that friend to get saved, that friend to get healed, for the gospel to go forth in your city, for that gospel to go forth in hard places, and it goes forth, it's for His glory and our joy. Is there not joy when God moves in big ways? There is. But it's His movement. Our party is in His movement. We party because He moved. Praise the Lord. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Ooh. Really? Well, I've been praying for this Porsche. I've been praying. Porsche, anything. Mansions, right? Lamborghinis. They still make those? I don't even know. They were cool when I was seven. Well, I pray in Jesus' name. Because here's our problem. We think then all of a sudden in Jesus' name is a magic trick. It's an incantation. I prayed for it in Jesus' name. And they're like, but then I didn't get it. What's the deal, Jesus? We miss that in Jesus' name is in his person and what he's doing. And all of these things we're talking about here are about the expansion of the kingdom of God. And the more we're in tune with God and the expansion of his kingdom for his glory, the more we're willing to say, not my will be done, but your will be done. Whenever you're praying in Jesus' name, you're saying, Jesus, I really want this to happen. This would be a great opportunity. If I could just, if, if me taking this can of pickles to my neighbor is an opportunity for the gospel to shine, please let it be. Please, Jesus, on your face. And you got your pickles and you're praying over the pickles and you take them to your neighbor. And you say, you want to talk about Jesus? And they shut the door in your face. They don't even take your pickles. And they open it and take your pickles and then shut the door in your face, or whatever that might be. And then you hear that something happens with their coworker or some other thing. Maybe, maybe God is going to save them. Maybe he is going to move. But maybe he's going to build somebody else's faith through doing it. Maybe he's going to build your faith when you say, okay, I'll pray again. I'll bring the pickles again. He can even steal them like Wiley e. Coyote again. I'm going to keep doing it. And maybe it's not about them. Maybe it's about you. Maybe it's about God moving his kingdom and your endurance and your trust and your faith in who God is. I don't know because I'm not God. Neither are you. But when you're asking, you're praying the kingdom down. That's when we know we're praying in his will. Not, I mean, that's the number one thing when we pray in his will. Not my will, but your will. Because my ideas are usually dumb. Right? When I look back down the pipe of my life, I see where God said, no, 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 no. And he said, yes, 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 to a bunch of things I wasn't even praying about. He's gracious and good. He loves you. I mean, can you imagine the incantation mode, the magic mode, mansion, Lamborghini, Ferrari, 
We're just walking around like a bunch of spoiled children. If we think what that means is that I need to have enough faith that God would treat me like a spoiled child, we're missing the point. That's not what Jesus is even saying. But we're so individualistic and we're so about materialism that we can miss the whole thing. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. The kingdom expansion work, expanding works, and greater works than these will he do. I think we're talking about number, because when Jesus dies on the cross, how many people are true believers at the moment when he dies on the cross? Well, Peter's ditching. It's like John, his mama, a couple of her friends, right? Team's not big. How many people are Christians on planet Earth today? I don't even know that. You can go to the Joshua Project to find out, right? God's moving. I mean, the kingdom is expanding, and people are getting saved, and these mighty things are happening, and people are passing from death to life. It's not that you're going to do something bigger than the cross, by the way. Because I don't even know what that would be. There's nothing bigger than the cross. Yes, me, anything in my name, I'll do it. I hope that as we see this and we believe Jesus about who he is and what he is doing, in just these few little verses, I mean, I hope this makes us want to stand up and sing about Jesus. This makes me passionate about Jesus. This makes me want to worship Jesus more. This makes me want to stick my nose in my Bible more. But I also hope this grows in us and spurs in us conviction about who he is and what he has done and that we would believe his very words. But again, not just conviction, but that we're awake to reality. Money's not your God. Substances aren't your God. Friends aren't your God. Your family's not your God. The fact that nobody likes you is not your God. These are the controlling realities we give ourselves over to again and again and again. The controlling reality is that Jesus is God. And he's made room for you. And he's given you life. Not just life some other time, but life right now. And all those things spur us to a grace-based response. I'm not responding to that reality so that God will love me. I'm not responding to that reality so I can be free. I'm responding to that reality because I am free. I'm responding to that reality because he does love me. I'm responding to that reality because he has made a place for me. And I am his. He is mine. If you do not know Jesus today, this is the first time you've ever heard this wonderful news. There is one way to God. His name is Jesus. He's died on the cross to make you alive. He's made the way for you to know God and be free and to be forgiven and to be saved. It turns from our sin. It turns to him. Jesus, help me, forgive me, save me. Receive Jesus and what he's doing. If you are a Christian, what's the controlling reality of your life? Are your hearts troubled? Do you believe in God and believe in the ultimate? Just believing in whatever, whatever they're selling. Good news is you got life. It's not, oh, now make a plan to get out of this stuff. But you turn from it, you turn to him right now and live. Like right now. Like not tomorrow, not next week, not later, not when you get stuff figured out. Right now. You turn from your sin and you turn to him and you live. 
live. 